This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Delighted to welcome you here tonight. My name is Hannah McGill. I'm confusingly the Artistic Director of the Edinburgh International Film Festival and very pleased to be rarely introducing something other than a film. Um, particularly pleased to have been invited by Nick Barley to chair this event tonight with two great American storytellers. Um, it's a real honor to have them here in Edinburgh. These are two of the most acclaimed um, recent works of American literature and two really, really interesting writers. I will say that being made to read these two books in quick succession in a compressed time period as I just have is quite an emotional undertaking. Um, some of my friends and colleagues were a bit worried about me at certain points, but, um, but also very, very enriching and, and uplifting because of the messages that are in there about life and adolescence and growing up and family and the world of work and also just the sheer quality of the writing these are two writers with an incredible skill for description and communication and a real clarity of communication um, these are books that are different in some ways stylistically quite different but there are thematic connections in terms of their focus on family relationships on fathers and sons particularly and on the American landscape, quite different American landscapes, but American landscapes that are dealt with with real knowledge and passion and also the world of work and of American industry and um, and a real connection with the, with the land and with with um, function of American life. And um, I think it's fascinating to have you guys here. And so these two men are going to read for us and then I will do a couple of questions with them and then we'll, we'll go to you guys. I'm sure you'll have your own questions. Um, the writer just here, David Van, um, an academic, a writer, a documentarian, a journalist, multiple award winner already. Um, he's been described as one of the best writers of his generation and as a new great American novelist. Um, David Van, please welcome him. And we're also very privileged to have with us Willie Vlautin, the author of Lean on Pete. Um, it's his third novel. He's also a musician, the frontman of Richmond Fontaine. And if you haven't heard the band, then I encourage you to do so. If you like the book, if you like the mode of expression and the landscape of the book, then I guarantee you'll love the music and possibly even do the two things at once. Read the book whilst listening to the music. I did that, it was good. And again, has been described as one of the finest American writers of his generation, Willie Vlautin. So thank you both for being here and um, we look forward to hearing you talk about the books but first we look forward to hearing you read from them. I think we're going to start with Willie with a reading from Lean on Pete. You can go up there, yeah. Thanks for coming. I went into the truck stop and got a pre-made sandwich and a gallon of water and waited out on the sidewalk. And every once in a while, I'd ask someone who looked all right for a ride, but I didn't have any luck. It wasn't until around three o'clock in the afternoon that I saw four long-haired guys pull up in a small red car. They were all dressed in black pants and black t-shirts. I asked them where they were going, and they said Denver. I asked them if I could get a ride there, and they told me I could. Then they went into the store and I waited by their car. When they came out, they were each carrying a bottle of Mountain Dew. And I got in the back seat and we left. 
They were in high school, they said, and they were going to see a concert. They smoked cloves, cigarettes, and drank soda, and ate candy bars and beef jerky, and played the stereo so loud that they blew one of the speakers, and then two of the guys almost got in a fight about it. They didn't talk to me, so I didn't talk to them, and mostly I just looked out the window. And finally, we drove into Denver, and they parked their cars across the street from a place called the Bluebird Theater on Colfax Avenue, and I told them thanks and started walking down the street. It was night, and I came to a closed store, and I hid my blanket behind a dumpster in their back lot and went looking for food. But every mini-mart I came to looked like the one where I got caught, and my nerves, they just wouldn't let me go in. It wasn't a good part of town. There were liquor stores and bars and dirty magazine places. I saw a drunk black man pushing an empty baby stroller, and I saw a guy whose face was deformed, and a woman who yelled at a man and said horrible things to him and chased him around a Walgreens parking lot. I came to a Caro's restaurant and went inside. There was a lady who sat people, and she came up to me and I told her I was waiting for my parents, and she told me I could sit on the couch by the entrance. Well, I stayed there for a while until a group of people got up from a booth near where the restrooms were. One of them left most of a hamburger and fries. They went to the counter to pay and I got up and went to the table and took the burger and as many fries as I could. I went into the bathroom, found a stall and sat down on the seat. There was a guy next to me. He was using the toilet and it smelled horrible and he kept coughing and grunting and the walls had things written on them. There were drawings of naked women. There was a swastika and phone numbers and dirty things written. I ate the food, but it was hard. When I made it back out to the street and really saw where I was, I got depressed. I didn't mind skipping Charlene's. They would have let me go to school. They probably would have let me play football. I didn't mind being called Del Montgomery and liked the bed and the sheets and the food and I liked having people around. As I walked down Colfax Avenue, I got more and more worried. What if my aunt lived in Florida or in Maine? Or what if she'd somehow died? What if she wouldn't want me? What if she never really liked me in the first place? I was only 11 years old the last time I saw her. I didn't know anything back then. I got my blanket from behind the dumpster and kept walking until I saw an office building that had a bunch of bushes alongside it. I crawled inside them until I found an all right place to lie down. I put the blanket over me and waited until morning. The next day I met a man who called himself Silver and he lived in the back of his camper. He was tall and heavy set with a thick beard that was gray and black. His truck had broken down and he was parked on the side street in front of an apartment building. He told me he had to move it at least once a week but that his battery was dead. But if I helped him steal one, he'd let me spend the night in there with him. I told him I'd think about it. Then he asked me if I was hungry, and I told him I was. And we walked to the Denver Rescue Mission and ate lunch there. They served a bowl of split pea soup, a cheese sandwich, a carton of milk, and a couple of cookies. Silver, he hardly ate anything, and he gave me what he had left. After that, we separated, and I spent the day in a park, watching people play soccer, and another bunch of people play touch football. Then night came, and I went back to the mission and had dinner there. When I left there, I went up and down Colfax again. I saw two men get in a fight and I saw a girl that had a tattoo on her face and a man and a woman having sex in a car. Then I ran into Silver as he walked with a skinny blonde woman who I found out was named Martha. They said I could come with them to Silver's camper. We walked for a long time until we reached a neighborhood where it was parked. The camper was big and white and had a huge den on the side of it. It sat on a pickup truck. And inside there was a table, bed, a booth to sit at, a stove, and an icebox. The windows were taped over with black garbage bags so you couldn't see in or out. It wasn't as in bad a shape as you'd think. He kept it all right. Both he and Martha drank off a bottle of vodka 
and we all watched a small battery-powered TV. There was a big bag of potato chips on the table, and they said I could have some, and so I just sat there and ate them and watched a police detective show on TV. They smoked cigarettes and drank the whole bottle. Later on, they moved up to the bed, and I asked Silver if I could stay the night, and he said it was okay, so I slept on a bench seat. But a couple hours later, I woke to him standing over me. The TV was still on, but there wasn't any program playing. It was just static. I couldn't see, but I could see that he was naked. He began punching me in the stomach and the face. You're a fucking bastard, he yelled at me. And he yelled it over and over. Martha woke up and shined a light, signed a flashlight down and yelled at him. I tried to sit up, but I couldn't because he was too strong. I begged him not to hit me, but he wouldn't stop. I tried to cover my face, but there wasn't enough room to move. God damn it, Silver, stop, Martha screamed at him. He ain't who you think he is. She got down out of the bunk and pushed him, and he fell into the back of the camper against the door. He didn't get up, and she turned on the inside light. She stood there naked. Her body was old. It was like the skin on her was falling towards the ground. Silver was on the floor mumbling, and Martha turned to me. You better get out of here, she said. So I sat up, and I could feel blood leaking down from my nose, but I was having a hard time breathing. He's blocking the door, I whispered to her. Then stand on the bench seat and stay in the corner. I'll get him up on the bed, and then you leave, all right? I nodded, and she went to Silver and talked to him for a bit, then helped him up. His leg was bleeding. He cut it when he fell, I guess. He leaned on her, and he was talking, but I couldn't understand anything he said. As she tried to get him up on the bed, I got down off the bench seat, unlocked the camper door, and jumped out. Thank you, Willie. That's a reading from Lean on Pete, which we will discuss more shortly. But um, we will now have the great privilege of hearing David Van read from his book, Legend of a Suicide. Thanks. David, thank you. Thanks a lot for coming. And uh, I want to thank the festival for having me here, uh, Nick and Roland and Hannah. And um, everyone's been really, really great. And. Uh, it's such a beautiful place. It's been a real pleasure to be here, so thank you. Um, the first story, uh, this, this book is a, a short novel framed by five stories, and the first story is ichthyology, which means the study of fish, and it's set in Ketchikan, Alaska, where I lived as a kid. Ichthyology. My mother gave birth on Adak Island, a small hunk of rock and snow far out on the Aleutian chain at the edge of the Bering Sea. My father was serving two years as a dentist in the Navy. He had wanted Alaska because he liked hunting and fishing, but he obviously had not known about ADAC at the time of his request. Had my mother known, she would have scratched out the request herself. Given enough information, my mother has never made the wrong choice. And that's actually my mom's favorite line that I've ever written. <laughs> um, so it was that she refused to have her sweltering, jaundiced baby yanked out of ADAC's underground naval hospital and thrown into the jet that sat waiting on the runway for more than six hours. Because my temperature was 105 degrees and still climbing, the doctors and my father recommended I be flown to the mainland to a real hospital. No one on ADAC survived even a mild heart attack while we were there, no one. But my mother refused. She was certain with what my father always described as an animal instinctive fear that the moment I was born aloft, I would perish. She placed me in an ordinary white bathtub filled with cold water, and there I survived, flourished even. My orange blotchy skin gradually calmed to a healthy baby pink, my limbs unlocked, and I flailed my legs in the waters until she lifted me out and we both slept. 
When my father had finished his sentence with the Navy, we moved to Ketchikan, an island in southeastern Alaska, where he bought a dental practice and three years later, a fishing boat. The boat was a new 23-foot uniflight fiberglass cabin cruiser. Still wearing his dental smock beneath his jacket, he launched the boat late on a Friday afternoon as we cheered from shore. He slipped it into its stall in the docks, and the next morning he stood on the edge of those docks, looking down 30 feet through clear, icy Alaskan water to where the snow goose sat like a white mirage on the rounded gray stones. My father had named it the snow goose because he had been filled with dreams of its white hull flying over the waves, but he had forgotten to put in the drain plugs the afternoon of the launching. Unlike my mother, he had neither eyes nor ears for matters below the surface. There are a few true things in the story, and that's one of them. I come from a family of sinkers. We've all sunk a boat, like my grandfather, my father, and my uncle sank the same boat twice, and, but I sank the biggest one. <laughs> uh, that summer, as we flew back over the waves from a day of fishing, my father had had the snow goose raised and cleaned, proof that persistence sometimes can make up for a lack of vision. I would be on the open but high-sided back deck with the day's catch of halibut, flopping into the air with them each time my father sailed over one wave and smashed into the next. The halibut themselves lay flat, like gray-green dogs on the white deck of the boat, their large brown eyes looking up at me hopefully until I whacked them with a hammer. My job was to keep them from flopping out of the boat. They had terrific strength in those wide, flat bodies, and with a good splat of their tails, they could send themselves two or three feet into the air, their white undersides flashing. Between us, a kind of understanding developed. If they didn't flop, I didn't smash their heads with the hammer. But sometimes, when the ride was especially wild, and we were all thrown again and again into the air, and their blood and slime were all over me, I gave out a few extra whacks, an inclination of which I am ashamed. And the other halibut, with their round brown eyes and long judicious mouths, did see. When we docked after those trips, my mother would check everything over, drain plugs included, while my father stood by. I played on my knees on the weathered boards of the dock and once saw a terrifying creature crawl from a rusty tin can that had been knocked on its side. Repulsed by those barbarous legs, I howled and went over backward into the water. I was fished out soon enough and thrown in a hot shower, but I didn't forget what I had seen. No one had told me about lizards. I honestly never had dreamed of reptiles, but on first sight, I knew they were a step in the wrong direction. Shortly after this, when I was nearing five years old, my father began to believe that he too had made steps in the wrong direction, and he set out in search of the kinds of experiences he felt he had been denied. My mother was only the second woman he had ever dated, but to this list he now added the dental hygienist who worked for him. The nights at our house were soon filled with a general keening of previously unimaginable variation and endurance. I abandoned ship one night when my father was crying alone in the living room and my mother was breaking things in their bedroom. She didn't utter any human sounds, but I could chart her progress around their room by imagining the sources of wood snapping, glass shattering, and plaster crumbling. I slipped out into the soft, watery world of Alaskan rainforest night, soundless except for the rain, and wandered in my pajamas down the other side of the street, peering in dark, low living room windows and listening at doors until at one door, I heard a humming sound that was unfamiliar to me. I went around to the side of the house, opened the screen door, and pressed my ear to cold wood. The sound seemed lower now, almost a moan, barely audible. The door was locked, but I lifted up the rubber corner of the welcome mat, and just as at our house, the key was there, so I went in. I discovered that the buzzing sound was the air pump filter on a fish tank. Something about wandering alone through someone else's house was awful, and I moved solemnly across the linoleum to take a seat high on a kitchen stool. 
I watched the orange and black striped fish suck at pebbles and spit them out. The tank contained larger rocks also, lava rocks with dark caves and crannies, out of which peered many tiny round fish eyes, shiny as foil. Some had bright red and blue bodies, others had bright orange bodies. I thought perhaps the fish were hungry. I went to the refrigerator and saw sweet pickles, opened the jar, and brought it back for the fish to see. I found slots on top of the tank, toward the back, and dropped the pickles in, one or two at first, then the whole jar, slice by slice, and finally poured the juice in, too, so that the tank water swelled up and ran in beads over the side. I stared at the pickle slices floating brightly with the fish, some of them sinking and twirling. They bounced slowly across the bright pink and blue rocks below. The orange-striped fish had all flashed about the tank as I had been pouring, but they, too, now moved slowly. They leaned a little to one side as they swam, and several rested on the rocks. Others stretched their long, see-through cartilage mouths at the surface every few moments and sucked for air. Their side fins rippled as delicately as fine lace. When the pickle slices had settled more, they rocked like sleeping fish just above the pink and blue graffle, and the real fish rocked silently beside them, as if in gentle groves of eelgrass and sunken lily pads. The image was beautiful, and in that moment of beauty I strained forward. I pressed my hands and face close to the glass and gazed into the mute black core of one of those silvery eyes. I felt as if I too were floating, gently rocking, oddly out of place, and in that flicker of a moment, I caught myself feeling the rocking and perceiving myself perceiving, realized that I was I. This distracted me, then I forgot what had distracted me, lost interest in the fish, and after slapping my feet across the linoleum of the kitchen floor, passed again into the soft, dark rain. Three years later, after my mother and I had moved down to California, I was given a fish tank of my own and decided to become an ichthyologist. My parents had separated, of course, startled nearly as much by what I had done as by what they themselves had been doing all along. Any connection between my vandalism and their nighttime exchanges was completely mysterious to them. My first aquarium was only a clear plastic tray of the kind most often used to hold nuts and bolts. In it were two goldfish I had won at the county fair and some gravel my mother had bought at Sal's Fish World on our way home. I watched over those thin, pale goldfish, but the tray had no cover, and after our cat, Smokey, snagged them with his paw and ate them on our countertop as I watched, unable to move, my mother took me down to Sal's and bought a proper 10-gallon tank with a bubble filter, more gravel, a wide-leaved plastic plant, a piece of volcanic rock with a hole in it, a few goldfish, and even one of those orange and black striped fish I knew from Ketchikan, which I now discovered were called clown loaches. We watched those fish every evening, cleaned their tank every weekend, and also survived the occasional ick plague, a sudden sudden mysterious proliferation of white spots on fins and tails that threatened to kill them all. We buried the first of the deceased in elaborate ceremonies, during which my mother would sit beside me on her knees in the dirt, and I would wear an old white bedsheet. The fish themselves were always wrapped in many layers of toilet paper, placed in small boxes, and buried six inches under, where the cat wouldn't dig them up. Soon we just flushed the fish down the toilet and replaced them. But even then, they were all I thought about. I wrote reports on them at school in lieu of book reports. My elementary school teachers never seemed to catch on, but apparently believed I had read books entitled The Clown Loach, The Silver Dollars, The Iridescent Shark, and The Placostomus, or Bottom Sucker. Everything in human life was to be found in that tank. Yellow and black angelfish floated delicately by, all glamour and glitz, while behind them trailed their waist and streamers. Suckers at the bottom of the tank ate this waste, spat it out in disgust, and roved on, still hungry. And within five five minutes of placing two new silver dollars in the tank, I saw real brutality. 
These silver dollars were large, thin fish, nearly identical in shape and shine to the coins after which they had been named. And once out of their plastic bag from Sal's, they swam up on either side of my one lazy, boggle-eyed iridescent shark. This iridescent shark had been badly misnamed. He was in actuality no more than a long, thin goldfish with a shiny body and two large, bulbous eyes. The silver dollars were slick and merciless and knew how to work as a team. In one quick flash, each went for an eye and sucked it out. They didn't even swallow, but let the round billiard ball eyes float dreamily down to the rocks where they were ingested by the sucker fish. My mother was swift in her retribution. The silver dollars were netted and flushed within minutes, and we spent that evening together watching the iridescent shark bump blindly into the sides of the tank, waiting for him to die. Sorry, there's kind of some brutality toward fish, and I really like fish, uh, but I don't know, it's just something about my childhood, and I was writing about my father, and I think indirectly the fish kind of got the bad end of the deal. Um, as we spent these years in California leading steadily more circumscribed lives, my father ranged farther and farther up in Alaska, and everything he did seemed to lack sense. He had never enjoyed dentistry, and felt now that perhaps fishing was more what he wanted to do. In this I believe he was right, and he was certainly earnest, but he didn't think ahead very well. He sold his practice, ordered a beautiful, expensive, 63-foot aluminum commercial fishing boat to be completed before the halibut season, and persuaded my uncle to be the crew. They had fished together for sport all their lives, but neither of them had any experience on a commercial fishing boat, and they were to be the only two on board. My father's lone explorer image of himself would have been undercut if he had worked first on another boat or had hired a captain. He named this boat the Osprey, whereas the snow goose had been a bird to fly its white wings over the waves on short one and two day sport fishing jaunts. The Osprey was a more wide ranging creature. With wingspans of up to six feet, Ospreys are known to soar far out over the waters in vast arcs and circles, and they often soar alone. The Osprey was not finished on time, so my father and my uncle entered the season a month and a half late. In their hurry, they fouled, one, they fouled one of the halibut lines they had set, thus jamming for more than a week the huge hydraulic wheel that pulled the fish in, and of course they caught almost nothing. The loss of above $100,000 that year on fishing alone left my father undaunted, however, because he had already entered the last beautiful, desperate, far-ranging circlings of his life. My uncle tells of one night on the bridge of the boat when my father, having lost for the 17th consecutive time at Gin Rummy, instead of looking glum and muttering an insincere congratulation, curved his back suddenly and spread wide his arms. Standing up on his captain's chair amid the blue-white glow of radar and sonar, he stretched out his chin, tilted what my uncle remembers to this day as a distinctly curved beak, and squawked out three degrees starboard. My uncle adjusted the automatic pilot accordingly, and in the morning they set what was to be one of only three or four successful lines that trip. This correlation between my father's predictions and actual success was rare. The hardware store he had also invested in that year collapsed, as did the price of gold, the IRS's patience with his tax dodges in South American countries. He was angry at having to pay Social Security, which ironically enough supported us after his death, and his relationship with his receptionist turned fiancé. In short, the year was not a good one. I spent all of four days with him in mid-January. Each night during that vacation, as I lay in a sleeping bag on the hotel room floor at the foot of his bed, I heard his tossings and turnings until very late, and sensed with the assur assurance children sometimes have that he would not be my father for much longer. His movements came in cycles that were closing in steadily around him. He kicked wildly at the sheets, groaning in frustration, anger, and despair until they billowed and ruffled like an offshore wind, then sank face first, utterly resigned and collapsed, into his pillow to weep. Then he began the cycle again. 
I assumed all along that he thought I was no longer awake, since he had never, to my knowledge, let himself weep in front of anyone. But one night he spoke to me. I just don't know, he said aloud. Roy, are you awake? Yes. God, I just don't know. That was our last communication. I didn't know either, and I wanted only to shrink farther down into my sleeping bag. He had a terrific pain in his head that painkillers couldn't reach, an airiness in his voice that was only becoming more hollow, and other mysteries of despair I didn't want to see or hear. I knew where he was headed, as we all did, but I didn't know why, and I didn't want to know. My father ranged farther and farther that next year in the Osprey, changing gear for, gear for albacore off Mexico, then again for King Crab in the Bering Sea. He began to sport fish off the wide, high stern, and one day caught several large salmon, which he gutted on the spot. With the return to port and sale of the failed Osprey imminent, after two years of severe losses, he could no longer even get a loan. With the IRS closing in and with no further flights imagined, he took his 44 Magnum handgun from the cabin and walked back to stand alone on the bright silver stern under a heavy gray-white sky and the cries of gulls, his boots slathered with the dark blood of freshly caught salmon. He may have paused for a moment to reflect, but I doubt it. His momentum was made up only of air, without the distraction of ground. He spattered himself amid the entrails of salmon, his remains picked at by gulls for several hours before my uncle came up from the engine room and found him. My mother and I survived. Not having taken off to any heights, we had nowhere to fall. We drank clear bouillon soup with a few peas in it after my uncle called and told us the news, and in the evening, as the light in the sky faded to blue and then black, we sat in our living room in the fluorescent glow of the fish tank, watching. The iridescent shark had learned to find his way around by now and bumped less frequently into the glass. The empty sockets, their rawness originally laced with thin tracks of blood, had been soothed and covered over by an opaque white film. The tiger-striped archerfish, who was half jaw, half tail, who swam always at a 45-degree angle to the surface of the water and who could spit sizable water pellets, was skimming his strong lower lip along the surface, waiting, and at some point, I have no idea when, since time stands still after a death with no sensation of passing, I rose to bring him the jar of flies. I let one into the airspace between hood and water, covered the hole again with tape, and sat down beside my mother to watch this ritual of the familiar, a relic from what our lives had been, but I knew that I had lost interest. The archerfish tensed up, danced in a fluttering circle with his hooked lip at the surface, the fulcrum, followed the mad flight of the fly with quiet deliberation, and spat his pellet of water with such celerity and yet so little movement that it seemed not to have happened at all, and yet there was the fly, mired in the water, sending off his million tiny ripples of panic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, David and Willie. Um, I want to talk to both of you about the engagement with landscape in your books and the specificity of the situations, the geographical situations of your books, and you're dealing with landscapes that you both know. Willie, your, your book is kind of a, a road story. It's a travelogue in a way. Your, your character is constantly on the run. He's, he's running from a, a, a bad relationship with his father, with a, a lost father, with a, a sort of constant um, failure to connect with adults. He's 15 years old. He becomes a runaway. His one point of connection is this horse that he makes friends with, and he tries to protect the horse as the one point of solidity in his life. But throughout the book, there's a sense of these very specific communities and landscapes in, the, in that particular part of the US. Could you talk a bit about the, the landscape of your novel? Um, I, I've always been in, in love with the American West. Uh, both my father 
uh, him and my mom's boyfriend, who, who raised me mostly, I guess, uh, were in love with Nevada, the desert, the high desert. Um, and that's all they ever talked about. And we would always go hunting or uh, driving around in the desert. Um, so I also loved it. Um, and I grew up on, on westerns. And, and um, the ideal life would be to own a place out in the middle of nowhere for both these guys. My dad always had big dreams of being a rancher. And um, so, so I've always you know, been attracted to writing about, uh, about the high desert. And so even though the novel takes place in Portland where I live now, and, and the track, uh, Portland Meadows is in Portland, um, I had to get him back to the desert somehow. And so uh, uh, the, you know, I did that just, just so I could be there in my mind for long periods of time as well. So location has always been important to me, both as a fan and, and um, as a writer. And, and so, and the place I, I do love is, is the desert and, and, the, and the high desert of, of the American West. And do you think you get particular types of people in different areas of the States? I mean, it's fascinating to us because we, well, I speak on behalf of British people, particularly Scottish people. We live in a tiny, tiny country. You live in a huge country. And there's this sense of very specific communities across a massive geographical scope. Um, do you think there are very specific um, personalities, types of people in these places? It's, it's hard for me to say because I'm attracted to certain kinds of things, you know. I'm always attracted to the guy that... Uh, that you could tell has lost a bunch of jobs and, and lives in a weird house we and drives a weird car. <laughs> yeah, I'm attracted to that. I just felt always more comfortable, I think, around people like that. So I've always sought that out. I mean, it changes like if you're in, in, in a tropical location, that changes. Um, uh, but they're the same kind of guy. So I've always been attracted to the same type of people. I, I think people are always the same. They just dress in different suits depending on where they live and, 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 and what the local ways of doing things are, I guess. Um, but I've always been attracted to working class people or people that are having a hard time. Like last night, I, I couldn't sleep, and so I read, uh, reread uh, Fat City, mm -hmm. the novel by Leonard Gardner. Classic American novel, and, um, and I've read it maybe five or six times. I never get sick of it, and it's just about uh, like washed up boxers. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always been attracted to those kind of people. So uh, th that's why I always write about them, I guess. Mm -hmm. David, I think for those of us who are not Alaskans, Alaska probably took on a higher profile in many people's minds when Sarah Palin was running for the um, vice presidential uh, position and possibly the less said about her the better, but I do remember hearing, reading an article at that time about Alaska and how the, the writer was saying that Alaska is so different from the rest of the US and so remote and so specific in its ways and its customs and its industry that it's almost not like an American state. And it's also vast and, you know, the biggest state in America and, um, and has a very, very specific character. Um, I wonder how you feel about that, given the, the setting of your book, the fact that you grew up there, what, what, the, what Alaska means to you. Um. This book is, most of it's set in Alaska, in Ketchikan, in southeast Alaska, which is mostly islands, and it's rainforest and, um, and fjords, and it's, it's very beautiful. I write about it because it's really mythic still in my imagination, because it's where I spent my childhood. So um, when, I was a, when I was a kid, I would run through the rainforest, for instance, and there were so many logs that had fallen and, and so much undergrowth that I could actually fall through and disappear and, and fall to a second floor. 
and and that was kind of mysterious and I I also felt um, that I was being chased and something was after me whenever I was out in the forest and we really did have wolves and bears and moose and all, all kinds of stuff um, and that the first fish I, king salmon I caught was taller than I was and and uh, you know my dad had to hold me so I didn't get taken all the way down the river <laughs> and my my grandfather caught a, a 250 pound halibut and and um, I remember as a kid looking over the side waiting for that halibut to appear my dad was pulling the line up by his fingertips just inch by inch because when a halibut's that big it's so strong that if you yank on the pole it can feel that and it just clamps down so you have to just go a little bit by little bit so it doesn't know it's moving and but it's 300 feet of that <laughs> a little bit by little bit so as a kid I mean this was an eternity waiting for this thing to come up and I remember looking down on the water which was a, a, a dark brown green color just like the top side of a halibut and just looking forever and it didn't appear and I was imagining things and uh, and then finally saw it very small and then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and it was it was unimaginable by the time it got to the surface and and to me that's what is great about writing about that landscape from childhood that's mythic from those times is that that it starts to suggest imagination and it, it also shape shifts if I focus on it enough and put enough pressure on it it starts to um, uh, change shape and become something else and indicate uh, who the characters are what the inside life of the characters is my, my favorite book is is Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and he he doesn't give you the inside thoughts and feelings of the characters instead he gives you all of that through the external landscape and the way he does it is that he extends from the literal landscape into figurative ones so he has a line where he says uh, the sudden or the the mountains on the sudden skyline, stark and black and livid like a land of some other order out there whose true geology was not stone but fear. And as that changed where the geology, the true geology was not stone but fear, that changed from the concrete noun to the abstract, from the literal landscape to the figurative landscape, that's really the power of that book. And that, that's a big part of American writing, that, that use of the landscape to indicate the interior life of the characters. And so that's, that's what my hope is. And I don't think it can be faked. I, I think that a landscape, you have to have a real connection to it in order for it to take on that kind of life. I, I can't write about places that don't have that, that kind of power for me. And that leads us nicely onto the use of um, horses in, in your book, which is this huge connect, emotional connecting point for the character, but also obviously something that you engage with deeply and have deep knowledge of. And again, it's something that you couldn't fake. You would have to know about horses and horse racing to write about it the way that you did. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree, like, like in regards to landscape. I mean, you got to be in love with it. If you're not in love with it, then um, then you you don't think about it as much. Or uh, it's the same way with with horse racing. I was in I've been in love with horse racing since uh, for 20 years, maybe. Like, really in love with it. I fell in love with this woman jockey and I used to follow her around and <laughs> I would try to make friends with all these trainers and it took me years, it took me 10 years to make friends with this the legendary handicapper. It, it, our track is the worst track of all time. Okay. It's a, like a, a borderline like amateur track. Yeah, it's one of the worst tracks, sad to say. <laughs> um, but the, the great the great handicapper there it took me 10 years to get the guts up to meet him and my girlfriend's a baker and she made all these cookies and I for him and so I bring it to him and because he and I would sit in this one area and no one else would be there so I brought him these cookies and he, he pulls his shirt up 
and he just had a, a quadruple bypass surgery and goes, what are you trying to kill me, man? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but then he liked me after that, you know? <laughs> so I, I was in love with it, and then the more I fell in love with it, um, the more I learned about it, you know, and you learn about all the horses breaking down, especially at little tracks, and, and how hand to mouth uh, these trainers are they would race a horse every two weeks and you're like well everybody knows you should let him lay him off and he hasn't been running well I mean I'm not a very good handicapper at all but but I know those little things and then so you start asking and you go well that guy's broke and the reason he uh, races his horse so much is because he's broken and, and Del Montgomery the trainer in the in, in, in the novel is just kind of a combination of four or five guys um, of trainers and, and actually the the girl jockey who I be, actually became friends with um, uh, she said she worked for that guy she goes how'd you know that guy because she edited the book and the horse racing stuff so I guess just out of pure love for for horse racing is is why I started writing it mm -hmm. and being conflicted with it and then I bought an old you know a five hundred dollar uh, ex Portland Meadows racehorse and um, and have him in my house and he, he, he's crazy as hell. And it's taken my girlfriend like 10 years to get him. Not 10 years, I guess we have, like six years to get him straight, at least a little bit. And, um, and so, so that's why I wrote Lean on Pete because I was ashamed of myself for, for liking something that, that wasn't good. Uh, and so I'd sit at the track and I rode a lot at the track. And so I'd sit there and I'd hate myself for it, you know, but I'd go, but geez, I'll just go tomorrow. And, I won on that last one, and there's something really fun about gambling. But when you start learning how beat up the jockeys get and, and, and the horses get, um, I, I struggle with it, and, and I, I think I was struggling with the kid and, and, and my own childhood, re really, I think, too, and the two kind of interconnected. Mm. And so that's why I wrote that book. Well, that was what I was going to ask you both was the correlation between the, the use of creatures in your books, the farming of fish and the sort of forced breeding and forced farming, and then the the use and abuse of the horses in your book and the fact that they're being, well, they're used, they're machines, they're not being treated like pets or, or feeling things, they're being used as machines to make money. And, um, and then the correlation between that and the treatment of the children who absorb whatever pain is in their parents and who drive onward and onward without really being supported in the way that they need to be. And whether that was a conscious thing for either of you, or maybe you first, I mean, your book is very, very personal about the relationship between a, a father and a child, and I know it draws very much on your own life. And I wondered what you what you felt about that the the coalition between the sort of natural world and then the parenting and the development of a child through bad parenting or or flawed parenting. When I wrote it, I didn't have any ideas about what I would do, and it, it was a big mess for about ten years trying to write the book. Um, so I didn't have any clear sort of uh, objectives or, or how I would use the material. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to write about my father and that it was an, an important story. For three years after his suicide, I told everyone that he had uh, died of cancer because I was really ashamed of, of what he had done. And so uh, when I did start writing, uh, for the first three or four years, there was just too much emotion on the first page and I had to throw everything away. And what I had to learn was how to tell the story indirectly and with a greater emotional distance. And uh, partly that was from reading other writers that I like, Marilyn Robinson's novel Housekeeping, for instance, Elizabeth Bishop's poetry. They both helped for that first story that I that read uh, tonight. Uh, and there's a strange relationship between the true material, the, the true story, and the fiction. 
most of the book is a short novel uh, titled Suquan Island, uh, set in an island that's about 50 miles from Ketchikan. And my, um, I grew up in Alaska, but my parents separated, and then I lived in California, and he was still in Alaska. And he asked me to come spend a year with him, and I said no, and then two weeks later he killed himself. So I felt really guilty for a long time afterward and wondered if I had said yes, if he would still be alive. So the novel is really the boy saying yes. It's a kind of fulfillment of, out of that guilt uh, for me, and that, that was the relationship that the fiction had to the, to the true story. Um, and then the island that they're on, Suquan Island, is a place I've never been to. I've never seen Suquan Island because I wanted it to be a landscape of imagination where nothing would be incidental just because it was that way in my real life. The, the shape of the, of the bay and, and the point and the, the hikes they go on and everything about the place would be a reflection of who they are, and especially the father. The forest would be a, a reflection of his interior life. Um, but it's 50 miles away from Ketchikan where I grew up, so it was the rainforest I knew really well. So it was something both familiar and emotionally powerful for me, but uh, set on a new stage where anything could happen, it could surprise me. And there was a huge surprise that happens halfway through that novella that I didn't see coming until I was writing that sentence. And it changed everything. And, and I, I really didn't see it uh, coming. So that's what I love uh, fiction for, is how it can come to life like that and, and rework uh, the real story. So it, in this book, I basically was taking what was ugliest in my life and trying to have it transform into something else. And is that the case for you with Charlie, who's the protagonist of Lean on Pete? I felt as if the, the use of the horses did correlate somewhat to this child who is being driven by other people, who is taking on other people's burdens and other people's ambitions and doesn't have a voice of his own and falls in love with this creature because it doesn't talk back to him. It doesn't tell him to do anything. It is just his friend. What was the relationship for you between the character and his circumstances? I mean, I, I started writing the book, I think, uh, I was having, I mean, honestly, I guess I was having a hard time figuring out reasons to get out of bed, you know? And, uh, um, and I'm really good at figuring, like playing with my mind to get me motivated and stuff. And I was having a really hard time. And I, I figured, well, I'd be around this kid who, who navigates darkness really, really well. And he, he comes across all the pitfalls and the darker sides of humanity, but, but, um, but he's, he can figure it out well enough to escape most of the time, but he falls in love with someone that is more fucked, basically, than he is, you know? I mean, this, this horse is, uh, is a losing racehorse at, at the worst track around, and ho horses uh, don't have anywhere to go down from there. Usually, uh, if you can find someone to take them, um, in this economy, it's really hard to unload bad racehorses, and they have illegalized uh, slaughtering horses in the U.S., so they ship them down to Mexico, which in itself is just like that, the idea of, of a bunch of horses in the back of a trailer mm. sent to a place with no regulations. Uh, so I think the kid fall, feels like finally maybe he has enough power uh, to help somebody because he's never had any power. I mean, so, so I wrote a, about saving one horse attempting in my heart. That's what I was trying to do. Um, I've always been really hard on my father's and on in my book, so I, I usually don't, I, I made a pact with myself when I was 20, I would never write about fathers. But uh, you know, Jesus, I write a lot of stories. <laughs> and I can't stop thinking about my father, you know. Um, but I, I, I go, I want somebody, if I ever get my books out there, I want them to go, man, that guy never writes about fathers. <laughs> so now I write about fathers, but I didn't shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> I do, but I, I, I shoot him pretty rough. 
I still haven't grown up, I guess, enough to, <laughs> to, to analyze it. I still, like, like my girlfriend goes, well, what stories are you working on? And I was working on this series of stories. And I go, I just wrote a great one where I found my dad in this bar and I just beat him nearly to death. <laughs> And, and she's like, Jesus, you're, you're so screwed up, you know? And I'm like, but it was fun. It was so much fun. And, and I, haven't, I still haven't grown up enough to, to, like, step back and figure it out. I just still have that, like, I get fired up. Maybe that's writers, though. Arrested Development creates yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Let's talk a little bit about style, because I think one of the things that's interesting about having you guys on stage together is while there are connecting points in your work, there's a big difference in the stylistic delivery. Um, David's book is a hybrid in a lot of ways in that it's a hybrid of uh, autobiography and of fiction. It's also a hybrid of a novel and a set of short stories. It crosses a lot of stylistic boundaries. Um, and it's very analytical. It's about constantly revisiting a trauma and figuring it out in different ways. Whereas, Willie, I think your book is very direct reportage. And I wonder if you could both talk a little bit about those ways of telling a story in that your, your way is kind of revisiting something over and over again, making a different kind of sense out of it. We don't want to spoil things. It's quite difficult not to do spoilers with your books. So we should be careful. But if you could talk about the style that you chose to write in and the, the sort of hybrid nature of the work. Sure. Um, no one in my family could agree on what happened to my father or who he was or what it meant. Everyone had a different story and none of them matched up. They were all lies to some degree generated out of our guilt. We each felt tremendously guilty in one way or another. I already mentioned my guilt. My uncle uh, went to the airport with my father on his last trip to Alaska where he killed himself and the therapist had told my uncle to go with him and separate his gun and shells, but my dad talked him out of it at the airport, that he was fine. So each one of us was driven by guilt and had a different kind of story and none of them matched up. So what I found over time was that I couldn't find one story, one consistent narrative, one novel or memoir that would tell the story adequately. And I worked on it over such a long period of time, over 10 years, that I was reading lots of different authors during that time and I was affected by different authors for style. So what happened was um, that I, I was studying Chaucer and, and read his Legend of Good Women and realized that one of the stories I wanted to tell, I could tell as a series of portraits. The word legend actually means a series of portraits from the medieval hagiographic tradition of writing about saints' lives. And so the title really means a series of portraits of a suicide, the legend of a suicide. Um, and, and so that helped me write that one story. Uh, it's called Legend of Good Men. It's the third story in here. And it has this series of men that the, uh, that the boy's mother dates after his father dies. Um, fictional, I should say, for my mother's sake. <laughs> she always wants me to mention that one. <laughs> and she didn't break apart the stuff in the room in the first story. She wants that mentioned also. <laughs> Um, but uh, uh, so what happened was the first story I can the first story um, was Elizabeth Bishop and Marilyn Robinson the next story uh, was uh, minimalism influenced by Carver and others the next story had that structure from Chaucer the the short novel is from Cormac McCarthy and Faulkner six of their novels the the one after that Ketchikan is a landscape meditation that returns to Elizabeth Bishop's poetry and then the last one is Fabulism from Donald Barthame and Calvino and others. And it was supposed to be a stylistic debate as well as debate in content. So there's different versions of understanding the father and his suicide. And there's also, also different styles that the stories are written in to try to capture different aspects of that experience. So the minimalism in the second story, for instance, is used to try to understand the, the sexuality and violence 
that seems kind of elusive about the father and the relationship with the stepmother because my dad killed himself in real life while talking on the phone with my stepmother and it was such a cruel violent thing that he did um, and he sent her flowers that she received three days later and and it was 11 months after she had lost her parents to a murder-suicide her mother shot her father and shot herself so it was uh, it was such a cruel thing he did he said I love you but I'm not gonna live without you and she was at work so she couldn't hear well so he had to repeat it and uh, it, it was so cruel and violent what he did that that I needed that kind of style that would fit that part of it. When I was writing, going back to Ketchikan, which I hadn't been to for 19 years, and trying to return to childhood and understanding where everything began, the origins of ruin, I needed landscape description and a poet, Elizabeth Bishop, to, to be able to unlock that material. So um, that that's uh, why there's a range of styles in, in the book, and, and each one came out with specific authors and tried to address a part of the experience. Mm -hmm. And Willie, your, your way of telling a story by contrast is very bold, very straightforward. He reports without analyzing. He's going forward, forward, forward. He's not reflecting. Um, are you inside of his head? Are you imagining that he's writing this down somehow? What, what is the voice that you're trying to get to with him? I mean, with this, with, with Lean on Pete, I mean, I, I think uh, the narrator, Charlie Thompson, would collapse if he analyzed anything. Um, I think when you're a kid, sometimes you just feel like there's a weight on your back and you're not really sure, especially if you've had traumatic things happen to you. You feel uh, there's something there. There's like some uh, madman behind you chasing you, but you can't really figure out what it is. And then every time it pops up, you're just like, holy shit. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope I don't feel that kind of anxiety or that sort of pain. And for me, it was always really hard to figure out um, what I was feeling when I was his age. I was definitely not like a, a rebellious like kid searching for girls. I was a lot like Charlie Thompson. Um, I wanted stability among uh, at most. Um, and so I think with Charlie, he can't think about things. He can't analyze things or, or have these big discussions on anything because if he does, then everything could collapse. Um, so he's just basically running. And I think, you know, in the book he runs so he doesn't think because when you're tired, you generally don't think as much. And so I think he's at that stage where it's really starting his past and, and his life and, and what's happened to him is, is starting to bubble out of him and he just doesn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. um, so writing it was, was really hard because I'm generally like, I like really simple stories uh, as a fan and simple prose. Um, but with him, he had to really strip down to the point where you, bear, you, know, you do just report because I think that's what he, he would do until until he becomes a, you know, breaks down when he's like in his mid-twenties, you know, <laughs> ends up living in his car somewhere. <laughs> the, the prose in your book really works so well because the, there's a sense of menace that develops in the gap between this guy that we really care for who's innocent and these kind of awful people that he's coming into contact with and I think we're really, we're afraid for him. And I, and I think your style, I think it's a lot like Hemingway where it's very exciting that it's, it's simple, it's pared down, and you're getting the world just kind of in, in concrete observations, but then those end up building into a pattern. I mean, this really, this world emerges really strongly from that, very, very vivid. Um, so I, I love, I, I love that kind of style. I think that's great. That's good because that's all I can do. <laughs> that's like a, the ideas of like the way the way you write. You play with words. Like my favorite writer is uh, that I really admire is William Kennedy. To me, he can just play yeah. with words, you know. Yeah. And I'm not like that, you know. Uh, 
I, I, I'm more from like what Car Carver said, like he, he could take a pretty bad or an average 40-page story and whittle it down to 20 pages and it was pretty good. <laughs> I can think of stories like that and, and just as a fan, I, I love simple language. But, you know, you, you got to like what you can do, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> um, can we go to the audience and see if anyone wants to ask some questions? Is there any more light? Yes. Thank you, sir. Go ahead. I think there's a microphone coming to you. Thank you. I'd just like to ask a question of Willie, actually, because I've read Northline and the, the Lean on Pete, and that's <laughs> the way it ends. You end up kind of hopeful from terrible things. Yeah, well, I mean, it is kind of a bad thing to always do that, I guess. <laughs> but I guess a lot of the times, I, I hate to admit, I'm, I'm, I'm not writing for any other reason except to, 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 to grab onto something. Um, I think with, with uh, Northline and Allison Johnson, I was trying really hard to uh, talk about anxiety and, um, uh, and weakness, you know, and, and people, the traps they get themselves into. But the only thing, the only way to fight anxiety or weakness is to get up every day and try. And I think if you do, my hope is that you get on a more solid ground so I had to have her that way. And the kid, he's just cool, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't leave him in a bad situation. I just couldn't. Uh, it was more life or death in my head, you know. I wish hopefully someday I'll write with a more uh, ability to tell a story that's not so rooted in my gut, you know. But I'm still a train wreck at times, and, and so <laughs> my books might, might end up like the way Lean on Pete does. I don't think rooted in your gut is a bad thing at all. <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, yeah, someone right down in front here. Thank you. Yeah, I was just going to ask about the emotional landscape because that seems to be the, the sort of common ground really uh, between you both. And it's, it's a sort of common ground in a lot of literature, especially American literature. I'm thinking John Irving, all his books he's looking for his father. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then on the other hand, you had Cormac McCarthy and The Road, which is, he's only got his father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you want to? No, you go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, I think um, my feeling about writing is that you don't really get to choose what you're going to write. Like, for, for this, I needed to work on this material, and it took a long time because I had no idea what I was doing. I, you know, I should have just started with a novel <laughs> or a memoir early on and written one, one piece, but I, I didn't, so it took forever. And then I have a novel coming out in January called Caribou Island that's set in Alaska again, but it's about a marriage. And I didn't know it was going to be about a marriage. It just ended up being that. And that's what I wanted to write about at that time. And, and that was all I could write about. There was no other book that I had possibly in me at that time. And now I'm 60 pages into a new novel, and it's, it's about all this material that I, I never thought I would write about. It's about, unfortunately, my mom and her side of the family. <laughs> Which, so I'm going to lose what family I have left if the thing ever gets published. And it's about growing up in California and the New Age movement and how I was meditating and, and trying etheric surgery and fire walking and trying to walk. Like <laughs> This is embarrassing, I shouldn't admit it. But I actually at one point believed 
maybe it is possible to walk on water. And so in small mountain lakes, I would actually walk toward the shoreline and go splashing in just to see if it could work. So it's about a very crazy uh, kind of time there. And, and I didn't know I was going to work on that book. I thought I was going to work on something set in Anglo-Saxon England, actually, like completely different. And, but one night I had this idea about, about my mom and, and uh, the house, which is a place, again, that was sort of mythical for me from my childhood. At this house with this walnut orchard and then the next day I just started writing it so that's what I've been writing so I, I don't feel like there's really a choice for the the emotional landscape and material it's kind of it kind of as you were just saying where you are at, where you're at in your life at that time because there's a real connection for the for the book the book isn't I don't think for either of us writing a book is something that you do like as a job or as a task oh I, I plan to do this it's not controlled by an idea it comes out of place and and um, and what's going on at the time, um, channeled through the characters that end, in a, end up being in the book. I don't know if you agree with that. But. No, yeah. I mean, I've always been a fan of novels that, and music too, that uh, can get you through the night, um, um, that, that are written with blood, you know. Um, and, and so I've always, I've gotten the most comfort in life from those uh, sort of stories. And so those are the stories I'm attracted to writing. Um, and, so it's hard for me because you know you hope to grow like I always tell my buddy at home like ah, hopefully someday I'll be writing like spy novels and, uh, and 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 it'll I'll be happy you know I mean all you can do is try to be uh, try to, to figure out life you know or figure out your life and luckily I can, I'm stupid and crazy enough I can disappear into stories for long periods of time and 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 that's how I've I've, I've gotten through life is, is in stories so uh, and I've never out, outgrown, uh, you know, writing about working class stories or, or, or people that are a little uh, broken or bent, you know. The second I'm not broken or bent, man, I'm going to be writing some really nice stories about people in Cadillacs. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? Yes, sir. Uh, Hi, it's a question for Willie. Um, Willie, you, uh, you've been described in your songs as writing three and a half minute short stories, I think it comes across uh, in, 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 all of your, in all of your songs. How, how, how difficult or easy, or what's the difference between translating that ability to take, you know, to take a concise story in three and a half minutes and elongate that into, into a novel? The, the difference between writing songs and stories is, is really, I, I like the work ethic of writing a novel, because you just sit by yourself and it's all work. You know, I mean, the work of being in a band is touring, really, and convincing the guys in your band that the song you you'd written wasn't that bad, or like it's not that crazy to kill the you know decapitate that guy in that. It's not. It's it's done all the time. Or the guys don't listen to the lyrics. You know, you just kind of mumble them until the record's almost done. Um, I I I like them both. Writing songs is what you do with a hangover. You know, it's like you wake up and you're fragile and. And, uh, and, and, and you're like, what did I do last night? I'm such an idiot. And that whole kind of like how fragile you can be, that's when I write songs. And, and, and when, I'm, when you see me running and looking good is probably when I'm writing stories. <laughs> um, they're both really hard to do. The, the, the trick is, is it's, it's easier to know you've written a bad song because you usually write them faster. And so it may take you a couple of years to realize the book you wrote is <laughs> totally horrible. <laughs> Where the guys in my band will tell me within five minutes, it's like, man, I don't know, man. Why don't you lighten up a little? They're always like, 
Captain Come Down, they call me. <laughs> there was someone else just here. So, did you have a question? Was it covered? Okay, just over here. Thank you. This is also for Willie, I'm afraid. Um, the question is more to do with what you've talked about tonight, about how you feel, whether it be from a person who drinks all the time or a young child, is that you have this really simplistic notion of the world and you see things as they are and you talk about things as they are. I'm kind of curious what's going to happen next. You've kind of like, you've pared yourself down from the motel life, motel life down to this adolescent kind of vernacular to the point that where can you go from here? Like, what level are you going to try to speak to us at, from the next book? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, Very how much simply. further can you go? Yeah. Well, I've been sniffing a lot of glue, so it's going to get really... Um, you know, you're right, you know? I think part of it's like a... I'm a not a good writer in the fact that like uh, things that are really hard for me to write about, I, I get more sparse with it. And I try to tell the hard, difficult things through actions. Because I do, like with, with Northline, I was so troubled by that book um, that I kept paring it down and let the actions speak for the girl. Um, and that's not, I think that's just because my nerves are shot half the time. And with the kid, kind of, the kid was the kid, you know, he, that was the character. I'm, I'm, I'm editing a novel on nursing right now um, uh, about the hardships of nursing, you know, whether it's taking care of somebody uh, personally or being a nurse or being at a group home. I went out with a nurse for a lot of years and I have nothing but the utmost respect for nurses and I'm trying to do them right with this novel. Um, but it's a different sort of story, so we'll see, you know. If, if it's flowing and nice, you know, then my nerves aren't so shot. And if it's pretty stripped down, it means that I was totally a maniac about writing it. So we'll see if it's bad, I, you know, and you run into me on the street, I'll, I'll, I'll buy it back from you. <laughs> I'll even buy you a beer. <laughs> All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for being here tonight. You made a great choice. It was a great honor to hear you both read, and thank you very much for being here. Willie Vlotten and David Van. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.